Welcome to the library. Feel free to get a little lost. Remember in that last episode when I presented the first five chapters of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz? Sure you do. I said I had another show. It's called Dark Days of Dorothy Gale. It's a spooky horror version of the childhood classic. Remember that? Well, anyway, I have another show. It's called Dark Days of Dorothy Gale. It's a spooky horror version of the childhood classic. There's definitely no shortage of Oz retellings out there. It's a pretty saturated market. There's movies, books, video games, comics, theatrical productions, etc. Sometimes they adhere to the original story, but oftentimes, in my opinion, it's more of a gimmick. A lot of stories are so far removed from the L. Frank Baum original version that they're nearly unrecognizable and could, again, in my opinion, be great fun stories in their own right without clinging to the Wizard of Oz name. I'm looking at you, Tin Man, starring Zoe Deschanel as the hipply named DG, Alan Cumming as the surreal non-scarecrow scarecrow and that guy you've seen in other things but can never remember his name is the tin man who is actually not made of tin or metal and is really more of a cowboy and they're all wandering around the outer zone aka oz hmm sorry i got a little off track there that one kind of gets me nothing against it but it doesn't need to be a wizard of oz story Anyway, the point is, Dark Days of Dorothy Gale is yet another reimagining of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. The catch is that it strives to be more faithful to the source material while being horrifyingly different. It's a fine line to walk, and I think I walked it okay. Last week I gave you the first five chapters of Baum's version this week, I give you the first five of mine. This is not an all-ages episode, so listen with care. Enjoy. Dark Days of Dorothy Gale Oz by Tyler Martinez Based on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and characters created by L. Frank Baum For my wonderful and beautiful wife, Elizabeth, without your eternal support through the toughest times, and your undying faith in all my creative ventures, I would be nothing more than a mere dreamer. For all my loved ones that never had a chance to read this, may we meet again in a much nicer world. I love you.
Epilogue Part 1 Dorothy had somehow managed to make it into what she thought was the dungeon basement of the Green Palace alive. She hoped the woodman would not think to check there. It was dark. She could hardly even see a foot in front of her. Using the lighter she had so thoughtfully taken from her home so many months ago, when she first landed in Oz, she lit the severed arm of her one remaining friend, Mr. Scarecrow, on fire to use as a torch. It would not burn long, she knew that, but it was all she had to navigate the dark tunnels as she searched for an alternate exit. Tucked under her arm like a basketball, she held Mr.'s severed head. His painted eyes faded away hours ago. The backpack slung over her shoulder held the remainder of her food, the endless spool, the never-dulling needle, and the book. The book she risked her life for so many times. The book that within its blank pages held some strange, dark secret. She stopped and tried to control her breathing, listening for any sign of life, any sign of the woodman or the lion. She heard a loud clank, and her heart began to race. Clank, echoed again through the dark halls, louder this time. She turned and ran as fast as she could, away from the sound. Up a set of stairs, through yet another dark corridor. Up another set of stairs, down a narrow hall, down another set of stairs. Hard left turn, hard right turn, hard left, hard right. Finally, she came upon two large wooden doors one labeled basement, and the other attic. What the hell is this? she asked herself. Mister was no longer conscious. What am I supposed to do now? Where am I supposed to go? Panic filled her voice as well as her body. She opened the door marked attic and found herself instantly blinded by the light of the outside world. Without a second thought, and nowhere else to go, she stepped through the door with no consideration for what might be on the other side. All she knew was once she was out of the palace, she could run. She did not know where she would run to, but she knew she could run. After the first step through, she found the door was not the exit she had been hoping for. It was, in fact, a door to nowhere but the outside of the spire. She felt herself falling as her first foot went down into nothingness. She gasped as she quickly reached up, grabbing hold of the ledge with one hand, dropping Mr.'s arm in the process, but still holding on to his head. Her eyes adjusted, and her surroundings became clear. She was miles high now. How could she be so far up? She could have sworn she was in the basement. What would have been on the other side of the door marked basement? 
It did not matter now. She needed to climb back in, preferably with Mr.'s head. It was all she had left, and if she dropped him, she might not find him again. Trying to concentrate, to think of a solution before pulling herself back up, she closed her eyes and took a deep breath. Out of the darkness, the seemingly random memory of the once-forgotten words of her mother surfaced and formed at the soft lips of Dorothy Gale. There is no place like home. There is no place like home. No, Dorothy Gale. There most certainly is not, came the sound of the woodman's deep voice. Dorothy opened her eyes and looked up to see her metal nemesis, face smashed in and battered, but grinning no less. Prologue It was a still day in the eastern gray fields, as twin Munchkin brothers Fink and Floyd sat atop their favorite hill, under their favorite tree. Munchkins, in general, were known for their small stature. They stood full-grown at around three and a half feet, and that was tall. Most Munchkins had lush heads of hair, blue from the day they were born to the day they died. They wore blue, round-pointed hats, pants held up by suspenders, and always wore plaid shirts. Surprisingly shiny shoes adorned their surprisingly large feet. Every article of clothing they wore was a different shade of blue. The color of their clothing did not matter in the eastern gray fields, though, as colors no longer existed there. Despite having no color to them, Fink and Floyd were still proud of their clothing. The clothes on their backs were all they had left of their former life. But that is a story for another day. Today was the beginning of a different story. Today was the beginning of the story of the legendary Dorothy Gale. Fink and Frank looked down into the valley below, watching as Mombi the Wicked picked the colorless flowers. She was a beautiful woman. She had a fair complexion and long, wavy gray hair. They always wondered if her hair was actually gray, or if it was some other color on the outside, out there in the colored world. She was tall and slender, and moved eloquently and precisely, as though every movement was meticulously choreographed. She wore many different outfits, but her most common was a simple, form-fitting black dress. Her distant audience cringed as she cackled loudly, 
watching as the flowers wilted in her hands. The twin brothers often spent their days watching her, not because they liked watching her, but because they felt safer knowing where she was. Today was, for all intents and purposes, a perfectly normal day. Fink and Floyd found themselves discussing the best way to kill a witch. No, 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 said Floyd. You're being ridiculous. You can't push a witch off a cliff. It just wouldn't work. Why not? asked Fink. <laughs> because they can fly, stupid. Fink knew his brother was right, and this bothered him to no end. Fine. How would you do it, then? Easy, Floyd replied. I would drop something on her. Something big, like a house. Now who's being ridiculous? muttered Fink. How do you suppose one could lift a house high enough to drop it on anything, let alone a witch? Floyd knew his brother was right, and this bothered him to no end. Well, it makes more sense than a damned cliff, he muttered under his breath. They sat in silence for a moment. This game always ended in angry silence between the two of them. The duo once again turned their attention to Mombi and the fields in front of them. They watched as storm clouds rolled in, listened as thunder rumbled throughout the land, and held on to their hats as the wind picked up. They considered running for cover, but they were homeless and had no cover to run to. The storms in the gray fields never lasted more than five minutes anyway, and running for cover even if they had any, was pretty pointless. Instead, they continued to watch Mombi picking the flowers. She, too, was ignoring the growing storm above her. Today, however, it might have served her well to pay a little bit more attention. The clouds grew darker, the thunder louder, and the wind colder. She stopped what she was doing and looked up into the sky. Her eyes widened, and she let out a short-lived scream. Fink and Floyd watched in shock and awe from the comfort of their distant hill as the clouds moved and opened up before giving way to a house. A house that landed directly on top of Mombi the Wicked with a loud crash and crunch. Fink looked at Floyd, and Floyd at Fink. Well, don't just sit there, said Fink. Say something else. Floyd looked at him in disbelief. What? You can't honestly think. Just say something else already, would you? Like what? What do you want me to say? I wish a beautiful girl would fall from the sky and usher in a new era for the land of Oz. Something like that. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of a large pile of firewood. But I suppose the girl in the new era of Oz thing works just as well. 
A loud noise called their attention back to the house in the distance. They watched as what appeared to be a young woman fell screaming from the sky, crashing through the roof of the modest-sized home. Nope, no more, said Floyd. I'm done. Not playing this game any more. I don't know what is happening here, or going on, but I do know this. I'm done with this game. Chapter 1 Lothor Fink and Floyd stood over the lifeless body of a young woman. They and the rest of Oz would eventually come to know as Dorothy Gale. She was thin, in her twenties, and dressed in a pair of blue jeans with a form-fitting but not tight black shirt with the words Lost at Sea printed on the chest. Her face was covered by her now disheveled, shoulder-length black hair. Underneath her hair, though, was a very pretty young woman, a smooth complexion, and dark green eyes with a nose perfectly proportionate and symmetrical to the rest of her face. Floyd looked at Fink. Then he looked up and saw the hole in the ceiling, through the next floor, and through the roof. Do you think she's dead? he asked. Fink just looked at her, worried that they, no, Floyd, was somehow responsible for this young girl's death. I don't know. I hope not. But how do you tell? She has to be dead, replied Floyd, certainty in his voice. No one can survive a fall like that. What do you think we should do now? What makes you think I would know what to do? Asked Fink, sounding increasingly worried. We could get Lothor, I suppose, said Floyd. Fink just looked at him. We are definitely not getting Lothor. Why not? Floyd asked. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because Lothor is a damned rapist, said Fink. You're still upset about that. One time, one time, and suddenly he's labeled a rapist, asked Floyd. One time is all it takes. One rape makes a person a rapist, Fink screamed. Not to mention the necrophilia. First of all, he brought that poor boy back to life. So, he wasn't really dead, which means it wasn't really necro. Do you hear yourself when you talk? Or is it just some kind of strange music to your ears? Fine. No Lothor. So what, then? Fink looked around and noticed the shovel sitting by the front door. We'll take her out. Somewhere far away from here. We'll bury her where no one, not even Lothor, will find her. 
She can rest peacefully out in the fields. Floyd nodded in agreement. Together they grabbed the young woman by the legs and began to drag her toward the door. Dorothy could not open her eyes. She did not have the strength. Her body hurt all over. She could hear voices, but could only make out a few words here and there. Dead. Lothor. Rapist. Rape. Necrophilia. Take her. Bury her. No one. Find her. It was not until she felt a small pair of hands on her left leg and a second pair on her right leg that she came back around to full consciousness. Her eyes opened wide, and she let out a gasp and a scream. She looked up and saw two queer little men pulling her through the rubble of what was at one time her home. She kicked and screamed as the men dropped her legs and ran screaming for the door themselves. Dorothy climbed to her feet and stepped back, putting distance between her and her possible soon-to-be rapist necrophiliac killer gravediggers. Looking around, she found a small steak knife lying next to the smashed kitchen table that broke her fall. She picked it up and held it out in front of her as she watched the peculiar men trying to flee the house. She stumbled backward once more and nervously shook as the men stopped dead in their tracks. A strange creature appeared at the door, herding the small men back into the house like tiny cows. Lothor, one of the men said, backing away and trying to keep distance himself. Uh, fancy seeing you here, said the other one nervously, also backing away. Lothor was a strange creature. He walked on four bony, spider-like legs that appeared to have more joints than necessary, cracking and popping with each step. His body was small and consisted of little arms and a little torso. His head was a near-featureless ball of flesh with nothing more than two beady little eyes and a set of thin lips for a mouth. Dorothy looked at him with disgust, fear, and curiosity. She waved the knife around. Don't come any closer. I swear to Christ, I will not go down without a fight. She said this, but in all reality, she would go down without a fight. Despite her pseudo-rocker, I'm a tough girl, look. She was still, at heart, a farm girl, and a squeamish one at that. She had never killed anything more than a squirrel that had run out in front of her car, and even then she felt horrible about it for days. She was not going to hurt Lothor, because she had no real fighting skills, and no intention of hurting anything or anyone even out of self-defense. As her Uncle Henry used to say, Dorothy was a lover, not a fighter. Lothor stopped and looked at her. 
After looking her up and down, he began to transform before her very eyes. His legs paired up and grew together, turning into long, fleshy, recognizably humanoid legs. His little arms grew out longer, but remained as thin as they were before the transformation. His nailless fingers grew to unevenly long lengths and cracked as they bent and stretched. His torso grew longer, and his legs grew shorter. His head sprouted long, wavy white hair. The flesh on his face began to morph into something a little less grotesque, as a small nose pressed out and formed slightly off-center and crooked beneath his black eyes. His face sunk in, forming a chin and cheeks, though his head was still somewhat shaped like a potato. Once the transformation was complete, Lothor stood before her, a strangely featureless, asexual being. Don't worry, he said with a grin stretching across his misshapen face. His voice was deep and syrupy, the words slowly dripping from his mouth with an accent that Dorothy could not quite place. I am here to help you. I sometimes forget how off-putting my appearance can be to outsiders. He continued as he moved past Fink and Floyd. As for these two, they could not hurt you even if they wanted to. Munchkins are unable to hurt people. That's why they have so many violent thoughts. In fact, the only thing a munchkin can hurt is a feral beast. They can't even hurt someone out of self-defense. He turned his head to look at Fink and Floyd. Sad, really, when you think about it. He stopped about halfway to Dorothy and looked down at the floor. A hand was sticking up through the boards, a shiny silver ring on one finger. He tilted his head a little in admiration before looking back at Dorothy. He continued to move toward her and extended a long bony arm, and with it a large hand with long spindly fingers. I am Lothor. And what might your name be, child? Dorothy cautiously and reluctantly extended her normal human arm and human hand out to meet his and shook. My name is Dorothy. Gale. Dorothy Gale, she said as she lowered her free, knife-wielding hand to her side. She felt a strange sense of calmness fall over her, like a relaxing cool sheet on a hot summer's day as she looked into this strange man's eyes. Well, Dorothy Gale, Lothor said, loosening his grip on her and retracting his hand. 
I suppose a thank you is in order. Uh, thank you? For what? She could not imagine a reason for a thank you to be in order from this strange being, or from the two little men who just a little bit ago wanted to bury her. For killing Mombi, of course. The wicked witch of the East. He had a large grin on his face as he gestured to the hand sticking out of the floor. She was shocked and appalled. I didn't kill anyone. I've never killed anyone. I, I, I never, I mean, what? No need to worry, said Floyd. She was evil. Pure and simple. Evil. Lothor smiled at Dorothy. This is your house, is it not? Yes, but your house fell on to that witch. He pointed again to the hand. That's just as good as if you personally ended that foul hag's life with your own bare hands. Dorothy pulled up a chair next to the debris that was once the kitchen table and sat down speechless. Lothor raised a hand slightly, and the table unbroke itself, becoming good as new once again. With his other hand, he motioned forward ever so slightly, flinging Fink from one end of the room to where he was standing, and mimed the act of breaking a stick, causing Fink to bend over on hands and knees. Lothor took his munchkin seat and looked across the table at Dorothy. Dorothy Gale, he said. Where is it you blew in from? Can Kansas, she replied, still somewhat nervous. Lothor looked at her, confused and confounded. Can Kansas. Just Kansas, Dorothy corrected. Hmm. I can't say that I've ever heard of that territory, Lothor continued. But being here in the gray fields, I'm not as familiar with the world map as I used to be. Is that Munchkinland? Here, in the east. This was all nonsense, thought Dorothy. Munchkinland? What the hell was Munchkinland? No, it's United States of America land. Lothor looked at her, hungry for any bit of knowledge of the world outside of the greys. I cannot say that I have ever heard of this, United States of America land, either. It must be relatively new. What is it like in this Kansas you speak of? Dorothy was confused, no longer as frightened as before, but more confused than ever. Well, it's gray. Very gray, actually. The land 
is flat and, uh, and it's dusty. And the part I come from, it doesn't have a lot of people. Houses are all separated by large fields. A lot of them are anyway. Even the people are gray. And they seem to live almost forever. To the point they forget the life they once loved. And hardly even remember themselves at times. On a clear day, though, you can look out your window and you swear you can see from one side of the state to the other. But none of that really matters because you know your home and it's where you belong. She found comfort in this little description of Kansas. Reciting the words made her feel as though she was home again. Home, in the smallest sense possible. Floyd walked over to her and placed a hand on her head, moving her hair around and examining for injuries. My dear, he said, you're describing the gray fields. You must have been somewhere close to here. Dorothy swatted his hand away out of frustration. I'm not delusional. I know where I came from. I just don't know where I am, or how I got here exactly. Lothor nodded and placed a hand on the table. Dorothy watched in awe as lines began to burn and etch themselves into it. Smoke arose as the lines began to form a large map. Mountain ranges appeared here and there. Rivers flowed across the land and through it like varicose veins, and lakes spotted random areas. Countries and regions became outlined as the world became clear. Gillikin in the north, Winky in the west, Quadling in the south, and Munchkin proper in the east. It looked like an old board game meant to be played with. The outer edges of the map were labeled Gray Fields in the east, Gray Sands in the west, Blue Ocean in the south, and Gray Tundra in the north. In the very center of the map was a large circular city labeled the Green City of Emerald, and it had roads leading to it from every direction. There were four larger cities among the smaller villages on the map as well. On the eastern side, between Emerald and the Grey Fields, was the city of Nitvis. In the west, between Emerald and the Grey Sands, was the city of Ildayed. In the north, it was Elbasapmi, and in the south, it was Idnis Itsa. Lothor looked at Dorothy and made a sweeping motion with his hand toward the map. Where 
on this map did you blow in from, child? Dorothy looked at it. Nowhere? This, this is obviously some sort of a joke, right? <laughs> this isn't a real map. She looked at Lothor and back at the table, and again back at Lothor. He looked down at the map and drew a deep breath. Hmm. From a place beyond the edges of this map. There is only one person I know who claims the same as you. So, perhaps only one person who may be able to help you. R really? Who? Dorothy was excited. Finally, she was about to make some sort of progress, thus getting her closer to home. He is known as the Great Wizard, said Lothor. He held his hands in the air for sarcastic air quotes around the word great. He, too, claims to hail from a land beyond this map. He has been here in Oz for a very long time. Some say it is because he likes it here, while others say it is because he simply can't figure out how to get back himself. Either way, he is your best chance to get back to this Kansas you speak of. Lothor slowly stood up. I guess you should gather whatever supplies you might need, keeping in mind you have a very long, arduous journey ahead of you. And get on your way. Floyd ran around the table and looked at Lothor. How can you be so cruel to get this girl's hopes up like that? He looked at Dorothy. There is no way out of the gray fields. Once you are here, you are here for good. He shifted his eyes back to Lothor. You of all people know that. Lothor looked down at Floyd and made a pinching gesture with his hand, causing Floyd's mouth to shut tightly. He then clenched his hand into a fist, making Floyd's mouth disappear altogether. That is true, he said, turning his eyes back to Dorothy. But fortunately for you, there is a way. He turned and looked at the hand sticking out of the floor. Everyone else shifted their focus to it as well. Take that ring, and you will be able to travel out of the greys. In fact, you will be able to travel into and out of any grey area you wish, as many times as you wish. Looking at Dorothy, he gestured for her to take it. She hesitantly walked over to the hand. I don't know, she said, kneeling down, cautiously reaching for the ring. 
It doesn't seem right to take it. It feels like grave robbing or something. Lothor looked at her and smiled. Believe me, that ring will do for you more in life than it will for her in death. She suddenly does not need it anymore, and you suddenly have a use for it. I suppose if you prefer, you can leave it here and live with us in the gray fields indefinitely. Dorothy inadvertently shuddered at the thought. She reached down and pulled the ring, but could not get it from the stiff, partially clenched hand. She gave it a harder pull, and not only pulled the ring off, but pulled the finger off as well. She let out a small, girlish scream and dropped it to the floor. The finger broke into pieces, before turning into a small pile of fine ashen dust. The hand did the same, crumbling and settling into a small pile of dust as well. She picked up the ring and admired it. It was a thin band with a clear stone, not gaudy, but not small either. Well, it is beautiful she said, cautiously placing it to the tip of her right ring finger, before sliding it on. She admired how it looked on her hand by holding it out in front of her. Ouch! she screamed, as she pulled her hand to her stomach and cringed in pain, almost falling to the floor. It was as though a thousand little teeth were clenching down on her finger, tighter and tighter. She made herself pull her hand from her stomach and looked down at it. Her finger became deep purple, and no matter how hard she tried, she could not bend it. She watched as the clear stone filled with red, and her finger regained its pale white tone. What the hell was that? Lothor did not move. It is binding he said calmly. It will hurt for a little while, but as with everything in this life, nothing is forever, and the pain you feel right now will indeed pass. He approached Dorothy and took her hand in his own. Looking at the ring, he shuddered in strange euphoric pleasure. Mm. This ring is yours now, and it will be until the day you die. May that be a long way off, of course. Dorothy pulled her hand away. She felt slightly betrayed by the lack of warning. I'll gather my things she said quietly as she walked past Lothor, purposely avoiding eye contact with him. Good. I will wait outside, Lothor said, 
as he walked to the door. Fink quietly unbent and stood up, and joined Floyd as they followed suit and left the house as well. Dorothy went upstairs to what was once her bedroom. It had a large hole in the ceiling and a large hole in the floor as well. There were posters of her favorite bands covering the walls like wallpaper. On the nightstand beside her bed was an old photograph in a simple wooden frame of her, her father, and her mother. Her father passed away when she was only two years old, and she was only seven when her mother passed away, leaving her in the care of her well-meaning Aunt M and Uncle Henry. She picked it up and looked at it. It not only made her sad but nostalgic for a memory that was truly fleeting. It made her sad, not because her mother was gone, but more because she did not have a lot of memories left of her, and even less of her father. With each passing day, the memories faded. With each passing year, her memories disappeared more and more altogether. Sometimes she wondered just how accurate her recollections truly were. Were the good memories real, or were they just something she dreamt, or simply wished it happened? She often neglected to reminisce out loud, in fear that someone would tell her the memory never took place. In her mind, if no one told her otherwise, the memory was true. She walked over to her closet, avoiding the large hole in the floor, and grabbed a backpack. It was large enough to store the necessities. A small blanket, a can opener, a small assortment of canned goods, a spoon, a fork, the steak knife she had planned on using in her defense earlier that day, and a half-empty box of matches. She saw Henry's binoculars sitting by the kitchen window where he used to watch the birds and placed them in the bag as well. She gave the house one more quick walkthrough, but could not think of anything else she would need, though she was sure she was missing something. It was always impossible to remember everything in a situation like this. Packed and ready as she would ever be, Dorothy walked out of her house to find Lothor standing patiently. Fink and Floyd stood behind him, Floyd still without a mouth, and Fink slightly hunched over and reaching behind himself, trying to rub his back with his stubby little arms. She looked around in awe as the gray world became colored, the sky became vibrant blue, the grass became bright green. The few trees turned brown in their trunks, and the leaves a beautiful autumn red. The strange colored clothing of the munchkins began to brighten and swell with vivid colors. Lothor, however, remained gray and colorless. The munchkins looked at Dorothy like she was crazy. They could not figure out what was so amazing to her. Everything was still gray to them. What is this place, exactly? asked Dorothy, as she looked around in wonder. This, my dear Dorothy, is the gray fields 
said Lothor. This land used to be beautiful, until the great wizard showed up. He created the green city of Emerald by stealing all the colors from this once beautiful land. With the colors went the seasons, and with the seasons went the time. He then gave the land to the witches. It wasn't long after that. The greys became a limbo of sorts. A place for exiles. A place for anyone or anything that displeased or disrupted the peace in the land of Oz. He placed a spell on the land as well, preventing anyone from getting into or out of the greys on their own. Except Mombi. And now you, of course. He looked at Fink and Floyd. These two have been here for one hundred years, if not more, and have hardly aged even a day. Mombi, the wicked witch of the East, was the only one with the ability to come and go. He looked back at Dorothy and the ring on her finger. No one knows where she got that ring, or how it even came to be. But it is a very much coveted piece of jewelry. You killed her, so it is rightfully yours. And should anyone kill you, it will be rightfully theirs. I would not worry about that, though. Most creatures and people will probably cower before it. Dorothy wasn't sure what to think. This was a lot of information to take in. She felt overwhelmed by it all and wanted nothing more than to sit and digest it. But she knew she had to get going. So, how do I get out of the greys? she asked, trying not to sound ungrateful. The path will present itself to you, said Lothor. A beautiful yellow light will guide you on your journey. Always pointing to Emerald. He gestured for her to look behind her. You will come first to the living forest. You will not see it until you get there, but you will know it when you see it. She turned around and saw the grass in front of her was golden yellow, instead of green like all the other grass around her. She turned back to Lothor and Fink and Floyd. She nodded to them in thanks before turning again and walking away, leaving them in this strange, colorless land. 
One last thing before you go, Dorothy Gale, said Lothor. Dorothy turned and watched, as out of thin air he pulled a book, and a piece of paper folded into a small rectangle. He handed both to her. Deliver this book to the wizard. You will know what to do with it. And use this map. Though it is likely out of date, it will almost certainly be useful, should the path for some reason not be clear to you. He handed her the book and the map, which she promptly placed in the safety of her backpack. Chapter 2 Scarecrow Part 1 Dorothy had been walking for hours. She turned around every once in a while, only to see her house getting smaller and smaller in the distance before eventually disappearing altogether. The gray fields offered very little scenery, a few trees here and there, and maybe some rocks from time to time. To her left, off in the distance, she saw a large plume of black smoke. To her right, she could hear distant voices. It sounded like a celebration of sorts. She tried to ignore all these signs of life, as she felt it would be unwise to stray from the ring's direction. The colors muted, and she found herself in a thick fog that only grew thicker with each passing step. She was still sore from the fall. Her feet hurt from the long walk, and her legs were getting wobbly. Keeping an eye open for a place to rest for the night, she came across a large rock with a smooth, almost comfortable-looking indentation in it. Upon closer inspection, she decided the rock would make for the perfect spot to take a short nap. She climbed up and fidgeted until she managed to get as comfortable as she could, as comfortable as anyone could in a large rock. She closed her eyes and fell fast asleep. When she awoke, it was still light out, or was it light again? Had she slept through a night and into a day? Or was there simply no such thing as night and day in this strange place, due to its lack of time? She looked around, and much to her surprise, she found a large line of trees in front of her. Most of them were tall, slender pine trees, almost completely stripped of needles. The tree line was not there when she fell asleep. She was sure of it. Perhaps this was just what Lothor meant when he said she would not see the forest until she reached it, but would know it when she did. With her backpack slung over her shoulder, and without so much as a second thought, she entered the living forest. Dorothy had been wandering through the woods for a while the yellow light dimming here and there, but still guiding her. She came to a small clearing in which a cottage sat in the center. Perhaps whoever lived here could give her directions, she thought, or at the very least let her know how far the forest went on. It was not the traveling that bothered her so much. It was the not knowing where the end of the journey was. 
She walked up to the house with all the excitement of a child's first day of school. She did not get too close to it before the door swung open with a loud bang, stopping her dead in her tracks. She quickly composed herself and ran to a nearby stump. She ducked behind it and peeked out just enough to see a rather large, menacing ogre standing in the doorway. It was green, its head almost its entire body. It had no hair and was covered in warts and moles. Its arms were thick, and in one hand it held a giant blade, while the other hand reached around and scratched its ass. Completely unclothed, it was clear to Dorothy that this was both man and woman in the most defining ways imaginable. Dorothy reached for her backpack, keeping her eyes on the ogre the entire time. Her hands searched frantically for it, but could not feel it anywhere. She briefly broke her line of sight with the ogre and looked around. As luck would have it, her backpack was about five feet away from her, in the clearing. Shit, she said in a whisper, loud enough to gain the attention of the ogre. It sniffed the air and twitched, looking her direction. She quickly ducked down and tried to hold her breath. The ogre made its way to the stump, its large bare feet thumping slowly on the ground, causing the earth to shake ever so slightly. She remained as still as humanly possible as it sniffed around, her heart pounding in her chest. She let out a quiet sigh of relief when the sniffing stopped. The loud, thumping footsteps started once more, this time getting further away. Dorothy slowly peeked around the stump once more, just in time to see the ogre picking up the backpack and carrying it into the cottage. Her heart sank. This was not good. The ogre emerged from the cottage once more, Sand's backpack. Dorothy watched intently as it slowly walked away. She knew exactly what this meant, and she did not like it one bit. She was going to have to go in and find it. Upon approaching the front door to the cottage, Dorothy found it locked. She ran over to a window and looked in but the glass was murky and dust-covered, making it virtually impossible to see anything on the other side. She could, however, see that nothing was moving on the inside. She tried to open it, but much like the door, it was not going anywhere. The overwhelming thought of knowing she was now ultimately alone in this land called Oz and increasingly helpless bore down on her, almost to the point that it physically crushed her. She now had two choices. Break the door down, or bust the window. She went back to the door and rammed it with her shoulder. Not only did it hurt like a bitch, but the door didn't even budge. She tried again, but once more to no avail. Again and again, 
each time with more force as the panic set in. She rammed the door almost uncontrollably now, the pain it caused almost feeling good. Finally giving way, Dorothy fell to the dirt-covered floor inside the house. She got up and dusted herself off. The cottage was dark. The floorboards creaked with even the slightest movement, and the dusty windows caused it to be darker inside than outside. In the center of the cottage was a workbench with the backpack sitting on it. Severed arms and legs dangled from the ceiling, gently swaying as the breeze flowed in through the now open door. Dorothy tried not to examine anything, or stay in the house any longer than necessary, but she could not help but notice something on the far wall. A man. A crucified man. Oh, fuck this, she said to herself, feeling nauseous. She walked across the room for an ill-advised closer look, grabbing her bag along the way. She was careful not to touch anything else in the house. As she approached the wall, she felt her heart beginning to race even faster. What the... She could not even finish her sentence. Upon closer examination, she saw that it was not a man after all, but instead... A scarecrow. She let out a small sigh of relief and laughed at herself. <laughs> of course it's a scarecrow. For some reason, this suddenly made sense in her head. She was not sure if it made more sense for it to be a scarecrow than a man, or if the thought of a scarecrow just made sense in comparison to the alternative. Dorothy feeling compelled to confirm it was indeed a scarecrow and not a man, placed a single hand on its legs. Suddenly, it sprang to life, lifting its head and loudly mumbling as though it was trying to say something. Jesus Christ! screamed Dorothy, and she stumbled backward and fell once again to the floor. She watched in a moment of shock and terror as the body continued to violently thrash against the wall, trying to scream at her the entire time. Eventually, as Dorothy got back to her feet, the scarecrow stopped thrashing. Keeping its head lifted, it looked at her with painted eyes. It continued to mumble, only now in a much more subdued, almost whiny and sad tone. <laughs> this was truly the most bizarre thing Dorothy had ever seen in her life, and that was saying something, considering everything she had been through in the last couple of days. She looked up and noticed its mouth had been sewn completely shut. She grabbed a seam ripper from the workbench that formerly held her backpack, and pulled a chair over to the wall. Standing on it, she found herself face to face with a living man made entirely of straw and burlap. She cut his mouth open with a quick, clean slice across the face. The scarecrow coughed out a small tuft of straw as three bats flew out, knocking Dorothy back off the chair 
and once again to the ground. Help! <sighs> he screamed and gasped. <laughs> Get me down from here. Before... The ogre comes back. Holy shit. You can talk, said Dorothy in disbelief. She climbed back onto the chair and pulled the scarecrow down. She started by ripping his feet from the nail that held them in place. Don't forget my hands, he screamed in a low, quiet, whispering voice. Don't worry, said Dorothy, slightly annoyed by the bossiness of this strange character. She wasn't stupid. She knew she would have to get his hands as well. She ripped the left one from its nail and proceeded to rip the right one from its place as well. The scarecrow fell to the floor, and Dorothy watched in curiosity and amazement as he climbed to his feet and ran from the cottage. Hey! she yelled. Come back! She jumped down from the chair and followed him out. They hid behind the large, familiar stump that once hid Dorothy. What the hell is going on here? she asked. The scarecrow pulled a small spool of thread and a needle from his shirt pocket and began sewing the holes shut on his feet and hands. That, that, that thing, that ogre, has been holding me captive in that cottage for years, said the scarecrow, without so much as looking at his savior. Dorothy watched him curiously as he patched himself up. She did not know what to say, and a momentary awkward silence fell between the two of them. The scarecrow looked up at her. If you don't mind my asking, how is it you ended up here, at this cabin, in these woods? Dorothy just looked at him. She did not know how to explain her strange story so she simply decided not to. At least, not at this moment, anyway. I am passing through on my way to the green city of Emerald. I'm far away from home, and I've been told the wizard might be able to help me get back to where I came from. The scarecrow extended his hand, which appeared to be nothing more than a stuffed leather glove in salutation and Dorothy shook it. I see. Well, I suppose you can call me... Scarecrow, since that's what I am. Dorothy, replied Dorothy, as she took her hand back and placed it on her backpack, checking for the book. Well, Dorothy, that fancy bag of yours must be very important said the scarecrow, as he pointed to her now frantically searching hand. For you to bust into that house of horrors like you did. It is, she replied. I was given a book to deliver to the wizard. Not to mention it has all my food and supplies in it. She opened the backpack wider, only to see the book was missing. It's gone. It's... Where the fuck did it go? Where... What happened to the... Panic filled her voice as she dumped it out and rifled through its contents. I have to go back, 
she exclaimed as she jumped to her feet and started running back to the cottage. The scarecrow grabbed her arm and swung her back around to him. You can't go back. Are you crazy? Look, the ogre is never gone for long. It's probably on its way back right now. He kept his voice to a loud whisper, just in case the ogre was nearby. Dorothy pulled her arm away. You don't know what that book means to me. Without it, I might never get back home. She let out a deep breath, relaxing as best she could. You don't have to go back in there. But I am not leaving without it. She turned once again and ran to the cottage. The scarecrow reluctantly followed. He owed her his life, after all, even if it was going to be a short-lived one once the ogre returned home. I'll stand here and keep an eye out, he said, making it a point not to re-enter the small house. Dorothy searched the cottage frantically. The lack of light was frustrating and only made it that much more difficult to find the all-important book. After ten minutes... She fell to the floor out of exhaustion, and that's when she saw it. The book. It was being used to prop up a short leg of a workbench. The same bench, in fact, that only a short time ago held her backpack. She grabbed it, causing the bench to lean toward her, in turn causing its contents to come crashing to the floor. He's back, yelled the scarecrow as the ogre approached the door and pushed him back into the house. You were supposed to tell me before he got to the door, said Dorothy. Sorry, said the scarecrow. I've never really been that smart. The ogre stood in the doorway, everyone looking at everyone, unsure of where this encounter was going. It raised its blade and plunged it into the scarecrow's stomach. With one heavy thrust, it went in one side and out the other. The scarecrow let out a heavy gasp. He coughed up a small bit of straw as he looked the ogre in its eyes for a few seconds, before they faded away. He lowered his head in defeat as Dorothy watched in horror. The ogre lowered its blade, dropping Scarecrow to the floor in a lifeless pile of burlap and straw. Looking at her, he snorted, and in a deep, gurgling voice, the brute spoke. You can go. Dorothy, being sure not to break eye contact at all, slowly slinked by, stepping over the body of the strong man as she made her way to the door. The ogre lifted his blade to Dorothy's neck, preventing her from going any further. Leave the book. 
it said. She knew this was a no-win situation. She would have to return another time, when this beast was not around, and try to steal it again. She slowly lowered the backpack, setting it on the floor, continuing to keep eye contact. I'm just... getting the book out, she said slowly as she unzipped the backpack. The ring on her finger, reflecting the light coming in from the door, caught the ogre's attention. Upon seeing it, he lowered the blade and knelt down, averting his eyes in humble shame. Lothor did mention that most would probably cower before the ring. Dorothy thought he was full of shit, but as it turns out, he was right. She zipped the backpack up once more and grabbed the scarecrow's surprisingly light, lifeless body on her way out. Once she was out and a safe distance away, or at least what she felt was a safe distance away, she stopped. As she looked at the body of the scarecrow lying on the ground, she began to sob uncontrollably. Uh, are we safe? asked the scarecrow in a tired, groggy voice. Dorothy stopped sobbing and looked at him. She watched as he reached into his shirt pocket once more for his spool of thread and needle. You're alive? But I saw you. I mean, I watched you. You're alive? The strange sight utterly dumbfounded her. Scarecrow, sewing the hole in his stomach shut, explained the blessing and the curse of his kind. Of course I'm alive. Obviously. I'm a scarecrow. I can't die. Well, I, I can, but it's really hard to kill me. Fire is pretty much the only thing that'll do it. Or, you know, somehow being shredded. I still feel pain, but I always seem to live through it. Just not always consciously. I tend to black out if it's too unbearable or the damage is too much to handle. Dorothy rubbed her face and her eyes. This place... This, this place is... insane. Immortal scarecrows? Nearly immortal. Witches? Ogres? Munchkins? Wizards? And God only knows what else. The scarecrow handed her the needle and thread. Could you be a deer and sew up my back for me? He asked nonchalantly. Dorothy obliged and took the needle as he turned his back to her. Yeah, Oz is a pretty strange land, all right. Or at least that's what I've been told. I've never really been anywhere other than these woods. Everything I know is only what I've been told by the seamstress. And who knows what she actually knew. The seamstress? asked Dorothy. Yeah. The woman that made me. Dorothy had not given it any 
real thought as to how this man came to be. After a moment of contemplation, however, she supposed it only made sense that someone had to make this strange, straw-filled person. Surely scarecrows weren't running around fucking each other and having little scarecrow babies out in the woods. But then again, she did not really know what to expect from this place. Everyone was calling Oz. Chapter 3 The Seamstress The Scarecrow was born of loneliness. It was a warm autumn day when the seamstress became a widow. Her husband was somewhere out in the forest, looking for fresh meat. It was the season of the eastern Lokayan three-pronged deer, one of the largest animals to roam the woods. It was also one of the easiest to kill. They were very friendly creatures, and ultimately too stupid to learn to be otherwise. He had been gone for several hours, but this was nothing particularly unusual, and so the seamstress did not find his long absence worrisome, and went about her daily activities. She spent the better part of her morning doing the linens and hanging them out to dry in the autumn breeze. Once her morning chores were done, and everything was out on the line, she felt a break was well deserved. Taking a seat in an old rocking chair on the front porch of her small cabin in the woods, she admired the weather and the scenery. A rabbit hopped through the small front yard, being chased by a squirrel, who was in turn being chased by a bluebird. She smiled at the situation, not entirely sure if the animals were happily playing with one another, or if they were maliciously chasing one another. Whatever the small creatures were doing, however, it did not matter. The tiny spectacle still made her laugh. Her eyes grew heavy before they closed completely, and they closed completely only seconds before falling into a deep sleep. Behind her eyes, in her subconscious brain, she was a child again. She was running around the house with a doll, setting up tea parties and pestering her mother and father, who both loved her very much. She had a wonderful childhood, and she often dreamt of it when she was content in life. This was the last time she ever dreamt of her childhood. The seamstress was brought back to reality by the sound of a child crying. It was unclear at first, if it was a boy or a girl. But after a few seconds, she determined it was indeed a girl. She stood up and slowly walked to the edge of the yard. She stopped short of actually entering the woods. The seamstress had only ventured into them a handful of times in her life. She did not like the woods. They were creepy and full of strange creatures. No, she was content with her modest yard and the smaller, more friendly animals that would frequent the garden. The crying became more desperate, and the seamstress felt she had no choice but to investigate further. 
mustering up all her courage, she walked into the woods. She walked farther and deeper than she had ever been before, until the cabin was no longer visible behind her, but instead only trees. The cries grew louder here and quieter there, but remained audible until she was able to pinpoint the exact direction from which they were coming. She came upon a clearing in the woods. Clearings like this were not uncommon. The treetops opened above them, creating soft, warm spotlights from the sun's radiant glow. In this small clearing was a small stump, and on this small stump was a small child. A young girl no older than ten years of age in a tattered pink dress. She held her head in her hands and was sobbing uncontrollably as her long flowing blonde hair hung down over the front of her body and danced lightly along the forest floor. The seamstress remained cautious, even as she ran to the child. She stopped a couple of feet away and crouched down low, trying but failing to see the girl's face, obscured by her hands and hair. What's wrong? she asked. It was just a formality. She did not honestly want to know what was wrong. She did not want to know what was wrong, because the same thing could very well be wrong with herself if she did not approach the situation carefully. Are you okay? Are you lost? Are you hurt? Did something hurt you? Did someone hurt you? The little girl did not answer the questions. Instead, the only words that came out of her mouth were, The man. The man. What man? asked the seamstress as she looked around. She could feel her heart pounding harder and harder, to the point that it felt as though it would burst from her chest. The man, he told me it, it was just a game. He... What, man? What? Game. Tell me what happened. The seamstress's heart was pounding so loudly now that the little girl had to be able to hear it, along with the not-so-hidden panic in her voice. There was a danger in the forest, and she was farther from home now than ever before. <laughs> he put his hands on my leg. He moved them up. His hands. His fingers. I have never 
felt a pain like that before. Did you see which way he went? Asked the seamstress, trying to regain her composure. If not for the sake of the child, then for the sake of herself. He said, if I ever told anyone, would find me and kill me and that's when I she began sobbing even harder and louder than before when when you what the seamstress asked the girl but the girl was not answering when you what the girl raised her head and stopped crying. She looked the seamstress in the eyes before continuing. When I killed him, she said calmly, when I took one claw and ran it from his balls to his foul mouth, she raised a hand slowly, revealing long claws on each finger. She bent each one down, but kept her index finger extended and pointing up. Before the seamstress could look up, a large, wet, red pile of something fell from the sky. It hit the ground in front of her with a loud splat. She looked up and saw from the highest branch of the highest tree her husband, hanging. He was split almost completely in half, and was now almost completely empty. She looked down and away, vomiting and coughing, not only at the sight and sound, but at the smell as well. She turned back to see the girl slowly stand up. She was at the very least seven feet tall, yet she still had the figure of a small child. This can't be, cried the seamstress. He was a good man. The girl smiled and spoke with perfect diction. Oh, you poor misguided thing. <laughs> he was a very bad man. He did very bad things. And now he is in a very bad place, having very bad things done to him. You're a liar, screamed the seamstress. Nothing but a cruel liar. She fell to her knees and cried. The girl disappeared, only to reappear a mirror image of the seamstress. Without so much as laying a finger on her, she lifted the broken mess of a woman up. There was now less than an inch between the two of them. Their noses almost touched each other. The girl 
who is now known to be Mombi, the wicked witch of the East, drew a deep breath. Given this extreme set of circumstances, she said, and your legitimate lack of knowledge of your own husband and his disgusting, vile behavior. I will let that slide. But should you call me a liar ever again, even if I am not around, believe me, your husband will not be alone in that tree. She drew another deep breath and tilted her head with slight sympathy, filling her otherwise cold, dead eyes. Tell you what, I will do something for you that I don't usually do for mortals such as yourself. She raised a claw to the seamstress's face and placed it on the center of her bottom lip, pressing seductively against it. She stopped applying pressure, just short of the breaking point of the soft flesh. I will take pity on you. Go back to your little shack and go on with your little life. The seamstress took a few steps back before turning around. Oh, and one more thing, Mombi called out to the now hysterical woman who turned around with tears in her eyes. I would not mourn the loss of your husband for too long. He was not worth it. Few men are. The seamstress lived alone in her cabin for the next forty-two years, four months, two weeks, three days, six hours, forty-five minutes, and twenty-two seconds. She lived off the garden that grew near her house. She drank from the clouds that frequently rained down into a funnel that reached into the sky above the trees. She went about her business and carried on as usual. She kept the house clean and did the laundry on a regular basis. Even the clothing that once belonged to her husband. As though he might return some day. He never did, and he never would. It was on a lonely night when the seamstress had the idea. She could not believe it took her so long to think of it. She had a cure for her once eternal loneliness, and all it would require was a bit of string, some of her husband's old clothes, and some straw all things she had an abundance of, in and around her house. 